Hello everyone and welcome to the September 3rd edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folson, attorney with the Floyd Scarin Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. Judge Brett Kavanaugh has been nominated to fill a vacancy on the United States Supreme Court left by retiring Justice Anthony Kennedy. Kavanaugh's nomination must be confirmed by a simple majority of the Senate. Justice Kennedy's employment law decisions have been, for the most part, pro-employer. This term alone, Kennedy joined the decision in Janus v. AFS CME Council 31, which held that government workers who choose not to join unions may not be forced to help pay for collective bargaining. Kennedy also agreed with the Epic Systems Corporation versus Lewis decision upholding the enforceability of arbitration agreements containing class and collective action waivers of wage and hour disputes. And in 2011, Kennedy sided with the majority of the court in Walmart stores versus Dukes, a decision that narrowed the definition of the commonality requirement of class actions. Judge Kavanaugh's decisions have similarly favored employers. Thus, his confirmation is expected to maintain the court's current pro-employer leanings. In his 2017 opinion in Midwest Division MFC LLC versus National Labor Relations Board, the D.C. Circuit refused to enforce a National Labor Relations Board decision sustaining the right of union employees to have a representative present during non-compulsory job performance peer reviews. Judge Kavanaugh's decisions in discrimination cases under Title VII, however, have been somewhat mixed. This week, the Senate commenced the protracted and tedious process of his confirmation. And our crime report. 64-year-old Brian Scott Krasnoff of Castaic and 50-year-old Lori Michelle Russom of Valencia were arrested and charged with more than 30 felony counts, including failure to secure payment of workers' compensation. Krasnoff worked as a subcontractor for maintenance companies throughout the country for over a decade. He was the owner and operator of Commercial Window Cleaning Company, and allegedly conspired with Russom, who owned a typing company, to create false certificates of insurance. Krasnov submitted the false certificates to these maintenance companies to secure jobs in Southern California, where he performed maintenance services. These businesses paid more than half a million dollars for his services and believed that Krasnov was insured when in actuality he was not. The California Department of Insurance recommends that the public confirm coverage directly with a carrier when hiring a firm to perform contract work. And an employer has been fighting her bizarre fraud conviction for 15 years and has finally found limited success in the Court of Appeal. Back in 2003, defendants Jose Luis Alvarez and Kim Marug at the time known as Kim Alvarez, pled guilty to charges they had defrauded the state compensation insurance fund. At the time, Alvarez and Marug were husband and wife and operated Alvarez Construction Company. 
Some of the workers were paid in cash by an intermediary, and as a result, the state fund was not paid workers' compensation premium. Marug later claimed that although she was not guilty of the charges, she nonetheless pled guilty because the plea agreement sounded like a sound financial decision. Marug and her co-defendant husband later separated in 2003 and began dissolution of marriage proceedings in 2004. Then, as weird as it may seem, she then married the prosecutor in her criminal case after she and the prosecutor began a personal relationship on an undisclosed date. The prosecutor died in October 2013 while they were still married. Marug now claims that she since learned that at the time she pled guilty in 2003, her criminal defense counsel was colluding with her former husband's family law attorney and her criminal conviction had an adverse effect on her community property rights. So in January 2007, Marug started her court battle and filed relief for relief in her criminal case, which was taken off calendar and not resolved. Two years later, in November 2009, Marug discovered another woman who previously had been prosecuted by the same deputy district attorney and with whom the prosecutor later also engaged in a romantic relationship. She said this other woman's story was almost identical to hers. This other woman complained about the amorous prosecutor to the district attorney's office, which commenced an internal affairs investigation of the prosecutor. During the investigation, Baruch learned that the prosecutor had engaged in personal and romantic relationships with many other defendants he had prosecuted, as well as one of the principal witnesses in her case, the state fund investigator. After the investigation in 2011, for the other woman, the Superior Court ruled in favor of this other woman, finding in her case that there have been substantial irregularities that undermine the lawfulness of that woman's conviction. So, in September 2011, at Marug's request, her husband, the prosecutor, provided her with a declaration that she submitted to the state bar as part of a complaint she filed against the defense attorney who represented her at the time she pled guilty and was sentenced in 2003. In part, her husband, the prosecutor, said in the declaration that as early as 2002, he knew that she was not the guilty party. A year later now, in 2012, Marug wrote a letter to the district attorney asking that the people stipulate to allow her to withdraw her plea, which the DA declined to do. So in 2016, Marug filed petitions for writs of error quorum nobis and section 1473.7 of the Penal Code to vacate her convictions. But the trial court denied the requested relief, but the Court of Appeal gave her a second chance in the unpublished case of People v. Marug. The major pro pro problem for Marug was her failure to raise her concerns earlier and to exercise due diligence on time. 
Much of what she now argues in 2017 and 2018 was known much earlier and should have been known with a due diligence investigation. Both are prerequisites to granting her relief in her criminal case. Nonetheless, the trial court procedurally failed to hold a hearing as is statutorily required and timely requested by Marug before ruling on her Section 1473.7 motion. The case was remanded for a hearing for that reason. Velasini Ganesh, M.D., a Saratoga family practitioner, was just sentenced to 63 months in prison for health care fraud and making false statements related to a health care benefit program. Ganesh and her husband, orthopedic surgeon Gregory Belcher, M.D., were convicted of the charges in December 2017 after an eight-week trial. The evidence proved that Ganesh submitted a series of false medical claims related to the family medical practice she owned, the Campbell Medical Group in Saratoga. For example, Ganesh submitted claims for days when a patient had not been seen and claims for patients who had been seen by a physician who no longer was affiliated with their practice. Additionally, Ganesh billed insurers with claims that certain patients were seen 12 to 15 times in a single month. A federal grand jury indicted the two, charging them with one count of conspiracy to commit health care fraud, one count of conspiracy to commit money laundering, multiple counts of health care fraud, and making a false statement relating to health care matters. The jury convicted Belcher of one count of health care fraud and convicted Ganesh of five counts of health care fraud and five counts of making false statements. The jury acquitted them of the remaining counts. During Ganesh's sentencing hearing, the federal judge noted that she obstructed justice by misrepresenting her understanding of the legal system, the amount of money she was paid by insurers, and whether she understood that it was improper to upcharge when submitting claims to insurers. In addition to the prison term, Ganesh was sentenced to a three-year term of supervised release in order to pay restitution in the amount of nearly $350,000. Last April, Dr. Belcher was sentenced to a year and a day in prison to be followed by three years of supervised release. And in regulatory news, the DWC has posted the 2017 Ethics Advisory Committee's annual report. The Workers' Compensation Ethics Advisory Committee is independent from the DWC and is charged with reviewing complaints of misconduct filed against workers' compensation administrative law judges. Of the 34 complaints reviewed, misconduct was found in five of them. Many of the complaints involved allegations of rude, abrasive, or otherwise inappropriate conduct by judges in courtrooms, mostly towards attorneys and at times towards claimants. For example, in one case, an applicant claimed the work comp judge showed racial prejudice because the judge asked, do we need an interpreter, after entering the courtroom and looking at her spouse. Applicant's spouse felt insulted by being regarded as a non-English-speaking person based solely upon, upon appearance and perceived race. The same claimant had further problems during trial. 
At several points, the judge stopped the proceedings and requested to go off the record, and then with arms flailing, the judge used a loud voice directed at complainant and her attorney. In this case, the committee identified violations of canons of the Code of Judicial Ethics and recommended to the chief judge that appropriate action be taken against the work comp judge. And in another illustrative case, an applicant's attorney complained that the judge was prejudiced against the attorney's firm. The judge would scold the applicant's attorney in front of the applicant and the defense. The judge's diatribes concerned what the judge thought the applicant's firm had done incorrectly in the past. Similar examples were given in numerous other specific litigated cases before the same judge. In this case, the committee also identified violations of the Code of Judicial Ethics and recommended to the chief justice that a chief judge that appropriate action be taken. And many of the complaints found no ethical violations. Typically, they were based upon complaints about the merits of the claim, asserting the work comp judge made the wrong decision. 29 cases were viewed where no violation was found. For numerous years, a slightly varied version of essentially the same proposed legislation regarding workers' compensation, Medicare set-asides, continues to be reintroduced in Congress. This year, the MSA bill was again introduced into the U.S. Senate. It is called the Medicare Secondary Payer and Workers' Compensation Settlement Act of 2018. The bill has generally failed to gain traction and support year after year. The MSA bill seeks to formally legislate guidelines around the workers' compensation Medicare set-aside process. Currently, the MSA and CMS review processes have been formalized in statute or legislation. Excuse me, they have never been formalized in statute or legislation. All CMS guidance around protection of Medicare's interests have been issued by way of administrative guidance only, such as the WCMSA reference guide and CMS memoranda. Essentially, the new bill would provide formal regulatory teeth to the WCMSA approval process that never previously existed. As such, the industry has been hesitant to provide CMS extra teeth into its currently voluntary MSA review program. When the MSA bill was initially formulated close to 10 years ago, the industry was experiencing many difficulties with CMS current contractor regarding inconsistencies in approvals, and long turnaround times. However, the current and last contractors have been more consistent in their review policies, and turnaround times are now reasonable. With all necessary documentation, CMS reviews within three to four weeks, so there is not currently a strong desire for WCMSA reform. But that's not to say that the CMS review process is without flaw. Overallocation of prescription drugs, particularly opioids, continues to be an issue that such overuse potentially could cause long-term health issues for the beneficiary. And outside of a limited re-review or amendment review process, no appeal process providing full due process 
in our court system exists. A CMS determination is final. Overall, experts say the proposed MSA bill is vague and missing out on a number of components more pressing and needed in workers' compensation MSA reform. And in medical news, Verity Health Systems of California, a nonprofit operator of six California hospitals, filed voluntary petitions for protection under Chapter 11 of the Bankruptcy Act. It has secured debtor-in-possession financing of up to $185 million. This additional liquidity will enable continued operations without interruption to high-quality patient care, employees, and suppliers throughout the Chapter 11 process. Verity has been losing close to $175 million a year. The health system employed more than 6,000 people as of the end of 2017. The health system's bankruptcy filing follows a series of deals that left it saddled with more than $1 billion in pension liabilities and bond debt. The CEO expects the organization will remain in bankruptcy protection from creditors for a couple of years as it restructures and works with potential buyers. Its hospitals are St. Francis Medical Center and St. Vincent Medical Center in Southern California, and O'Connor Hospital, St. Louis Regional Hospital, Satan Medical Center, and Satan Medical Center Coastside in Northern California. The nonprofit also runs a physician network and medical foundation that encompasses urgent care centers and doctor's offices. Doctors who are cutting back on prescribing opioids increasingly are opting for gabapentin, which is believed to be a safer non-narcotic drug. This anticonvulsant is available in generic form and sold under the brand names of Neurontin and Gralis, among other names. However, recreational use and abuse of the prescription drug is on the rise, and the increase has raised concern among officials in several states. Past marketing practices help explain the growing use of gabapentinoids for various types of pain. The manufacturer, Park Davis, a subsidiary of Warner Lambert, which was later acquired by Pfizer, engaged in an extensive marketing campaign to increase on off-label marketing of Neurontin for pain. On the street, gabapentin pills known as Johnny's or Gabby's, which often sell for less than a dollar each, enhance the euphoric effects of heroin, and when taken alone in high doses can produce a marijuana-like high. Gabapentin is currently not a controlled substance in the United States, so federal authorities do not consider it a drug with high potential for abuse but recent data indicate that the drug promoted as an alternative to opioids is one to watch as gabapentin-related complications and overdose deaths are increasing. According to the New England Journal of Medicine, gabapentin is now one of the most popular prescription drugs in the United States. It was the 10th most prescribed medication in 2016. Its more expensive cousin, pre 
Gabalin, sold as Lyrica and also made by Pfizer, was the eighth best-selling drug in the country. Some states have taken note of the increase in use and are pursuing stricter measures for access to the drug. According to the Ohio Board of Pharmacy, gabapentin was the number one drug dispensed in Ohio in 2016. In that same year, the medication was dispensed at a greater rate than any other controlled substance. This information promoted the Ohio Substance Abuse Monitoring Network to issue an alert about the illicit use of gabapentin across the state. Kentucky designated gabapentin as a Schedule V controlled substance in July 2017. The regulation requires authorized practitioners to be properly licensed and registered with the DEA before they can dispense the medication. In a recent month, West Virginia pharmacies filled prescriptions for 5.8 million gabapentin tablets, more than the combined number of doses of two popular painkillers, hydrocodone and oxycodone. West Virginia is also tracking gabapentin abuse and may introduce legislation in 2018 that would aim to classify it as a controlled substance also in that state. And Ohio has been monitoring gabapentin prescriptions for more than a year. People who have abused gabapentin and now find themselves addicted to the drug are advised to avoid going cold turkey. Instead, a professional addiction recovery treatment program is advised. Compounded pharmaceuticals are custom-made medications that traditionally were formulated by pharmacies for specific patients. By 2012, the practice had mushroomed, with some pharmacies selling thousands of doses of regularly used mixtures for physicians to keep for future use. Now, utilization and costs associated with compounded medications fell significantly for both managed and unmanaged claims in 2017. This welcome news is attributable to payers continuing to leverage processes that identify whether a compound is necessary and only allowing those prescriptions that appear to provide medical benefit. In addition, most states have either been considering or have already implemented formularies in part to short-circuit exorbitant compounded use. Coventry reports that managed compounded costs have steadily declined for three consecutive years and fell by more than half between 2016 and 2017. These decreases were notable in California, New York, Pennsylvania, and Texas. Each of these states saw the percentage of all claims using compounds drop by more than half for the last two years. Unmanaged compound costs have likewise posted sharp declines. Spending for compounded medications has now reached the lowest level in seven years. Eight of the top ten states, including California, experienced at least 40% reductions in the number of injured workers using compounded medications. More payers, prescribers, and injured workers have begun to question the need for a compound over a commercially available formulation. The workers' compensation industry has, for several years, highlighted the limited clinical appropriateness of compounds, their high costs, and the continued instances of civil and criminal investigations into compounding companies.
and the Food and Drug Administration is poised to limit large-scale compounding. Congress passed a law in 2013 aimed at bringing more compounding pharmacies, traditionally overseen by states, under FDA oversight. The law, known as the Drug Quality and Security Act, created a category of outsourcing facilities that could register with the FDA and sell products in bulk while following federal manufacturing standards. Under this new law, the FDA this month proposed excluding three substances from a list of ingredients that could be used to manufacture compounded medications in bulk. The action was the first time the regulator has moved to exclude any substance from a list of ingredients that may be used to produce compounded medications. And in other industry news, this summer, Atlas General Insurance Services added an exclusive new workers' compensation insurance program with accredited surety and casualty company, a Florida-headquartered insurance company. Accredited expanded its insurance offerings to include workers' compensation and selected Atlas as its exclusive program administrator nationwide. California is the first state where the new program is available. And now Atlas announced its new workers' compensation program for the cannabis industry in California. This program can accommodate work comp risks involved in all aspects of the cannabis industry. This includes growers, extractors, analytical labs, medicine manufacturers, food and beverage products manufacturing, packaging, warehousing, distribution, transportation, and dispensaries. Atlas has been studying the cannabis industry well before it became legalized in California and is now one of a few work comp platforms for the business in the state. Atlas will soon be opening this program in other states that have legalized cannabis. California Insurance Commissioner Dave Jones has said that the cannabis business should have insurance coverage available to them just like any other California business. And he said that this new program from Atlas is a crucial step in the right direction for this evolving industry. He encourages more insurance companies to offer cannabis business insurance products to meet the needs of this emerging market. And with that story, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and for much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish a daily flash briefing on the Amazon Alexa Echo platform. Search for Workers' Compensation News on Amazon. Again, I'm Renee Fols, an attorney with Floyd Scarin Manukian Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.